Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We'll never be able to afford that. Greg, give me something that'll melt my face. Congratulations. You just started listening to Bant the Banter, a Star Wars chat show. This is a show by fans, for fans, and featuring fans. You might be surprised how much we all have in common. Hello and welcome to Bant the Banter, a Star Wars chat show. I'm Jeff. And I'm John. And we have a couple of uh, topics to discuss today that I'm actually excited about. I want to hear John's take on uh, his preferred method for listening to the scores, and and I guess any score or music in general. But first, uh, I had a topic I wanted to talk about. And folks, I want to let you guys in on something. John and I discuss what the topics are going to be. But that's pretty much where we leave off. We don't. I don't ever know what he's going to say about a certain topic, and uh, he well, um, unless he knows me better than uh, than he than I think he does. He uh, doesn't know what I'm going to say, which is to say he probably does know because he's smarter than I am. But uh, this time around, the the thought that I had was, John, you remember in The Empire Strikes Back when the Millennium Falcon takes off from Hoth and Vader gets just gets a real gets gets a real fire to catch the ship. He even says, "I want that ship." As we're taking off, remember the scene I'm talking about, right? Of course, yes. Okay. I have always assumed, I say always, I, find, I realized this about probably 10 years ago, that the reason he gets, gets it in that he wants the Millennium Falcon is because he senses Leia's presence, but he thinks it's Luke. Because they're brother and sister, and she you know, has sort of the same, we find out she has some of the same force sensitivity as he does. Has that ever been your take on it, or do you have a different opinion about why he wants the ship? Wait, Luke and Leia are brother and spoilers sorry i thought you had seen past i thought you had seen past the empire strikes back i'm sorry no actually you know i i got to them arriving on the death star in new hope and figured that was good enough oh okay i hope that worked out yeah well maybe Um, no anyway um uh, you know me i'm of two minds of this um and i bet you could even name them um even though we're not scripted um (laughs) um 
Empire Strikes Back, when it was made, we, um, as we now know, well, as we now claim to know, you know, and, and of course there's this whole apocrypha when it comes to Star Wars and George Lucas and what he had planned and, you know, Luke and Leia, were they supposed to be brother and sister as late as even Empire Strikes Back? Or was this mysterious mystery sister who was going to be introduced in what became Return of the Jedi? You know, where was he in that plan? I mean, she does kind of make out with Luke on the the Hoth base at the beginning of the movie. So, I mean, you almost have to think, no, at this point, Lucas was still thinking mystery sister in part three, or part six. The third movie. Let's right. go with that. Um, so, I feel like... I, th- I feel like your theory has validity, but in order for it to have that validity, you have to retcon in-universe that the story was always going to turn out this way. Right. Um, I think it's more... Oh, how do I want to put this? For me, that scene has always come across more as... He recognizes that it is the Millennium Falcon. He recognizes that chances are Leia is on that ship, um, or some or people of importance are on that ship. I personally have always kind of headcanoned it is he knew always knew it was Leia, but Leia was for the longest time kind of Darth Vader's white whale until he is told about midway through Empire Strikes Back, that he has a son. He's told by the Emperor, you, the son of Skywalker lives, and, you know, he would be a powerful ally if turned, um, blah, 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 yada, 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 so on and so forth. At which point, Luke becomes White Whale 1A. Um, actually, probably in reality, Luke becomes White Whale 1, and Leia becomes White Light Whale 1, 1A. Right. Um because you know she's it's it's a professional thing you know she he's he's the terror of the galaxy he's palpatine's kind of bulldog for lack of a better term and she's always the one that's gotten away he captured her at the beginning of new hope she was imprisoned on the death star she escaped he eventually ends up at hoth where she is again and darn it if she isn't trying to escape again you know i i Whatever professional sensibilities that um, Vader has, I, I feel like are probably kind of offended in this moment, <laughs> right? Because uh, here, here's this, here's this rebel leader, here's this, this woman trying to get away from me again, and I'm not going to let it happen this time. So for me, I don't know that it's necessarily a force thing per se. I think it's it's more. Vader's more cognizant in the moment of her being there as opposed to him and his his desire to capture her. That's all very valid. I have another idea about why he wants that ship. If you recall, the last time he saw that ship was when Han Solo flew in and shot him and sent him careening off into space before Luke blew up the Death Star. So this could be something as simple as, hey, the last time I saw that ship, it shot me out of the sky. I want that ship. Which is an interesting dichotomy because we're both arguing kind of the revenge factor. Right. Mine's coming a little bit more professionally. Yours is coming a little bit more personally. And with Vader, it could be either from what it we've seen could. from the comics and, and the novels and everything. 
it could. I don't know. It just it feels like it's more cheap. tactical it would, than anything. Well, it, it just it feels like it would be cheap of Vader to do that. It feel you know this whole concept of oh, what's the equivalent? I mean, it's the equivalent of Kylo Ren in in uh, Last Jedi, just destroying part of the surface of crate because he has um he's mad at luke skywalker because he's mad at luke skywalker and so it becomes a okay now we've got the executor um at uh the battle of hoth and they're capturing they're, they're trying at least to capture these escaped rebel ships as they flee and all of a sudden then vader sees the millennium falcon and just decides to give up on the mission and go after this ship that took a shot at him and missed I, I i don't know i mean yes you're right it's not out of character but it also lacks some of the tactical genius that vader at least in canon in universe in movie has shown to this point you're right now if we're if we're adding in especially comics vader especially in the new runs of the marvel comics right. that have happened in the last several years oh yeah like i'm actually shocked that he didn't necessarily send the entire fleet after the falcon um but vader as we know him in the movies you know it, it again it, it comes down to this interesting kind of dichotomy do the books matter um and i i mean you know for me the answer is always yes of course because they form and expand so I guess no, you know what? I managed to convince myself. No, I get it. <laughs> no, I understand. I yeah. You know what? Maybe maybe this is Vader just being vindictive. You know, this is this is the jerk that tried to take him out on the Death Star and you know, and and there could also be a little bit of that professionalism in the sense of this is also the guy that allowed the Death Star to blow up and the Death Star, while it wasn't necessarily Vader's pet project, would have been, you know, a source of pride. I don't. Well, and he the, was supposed to be on it, right? I mean, so, what's the yeah. evil? What's the evil Sith equivalent of pride? I mean, I'm 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 sure I'll have to look in my old West End game source books, and that there's probably some sort of weird, obscure Sith power that that equivalates to to pride. Yeah, you're. Yeah, you're. I'm. I, you're. You're. You're out of my depth on that one. Or yeah, that's out of my depth. Um, I'm out of my depth on that one, I should say. Uh, but so, and here's here's my thinking, and 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 you're absolutely right. Everything you were saying made perfect sense. But if we're to take the films themselves at face value, take away everything that that Lucas didn't know when he was writing everything. So if we just take them at face value, we assume that they were all plotted out from the beginning. I think my take on it has a little more. Uh, a little more uh, weight. However, by giving that by by giving that take that that sort of weight and saying okay that's a possibility, it brings in another question which 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 sort of shoots my theory in the foot, but also brings up another question. If that is the case, then why, when Vader had Princess Leia as his prisoner in A New Hope, both on the Tantive Four and on the Death Star? How did he not feel that same presence? And by, by, by going that route, I'm saying, okay, well, maybe my theory on it is incorrect, but 
it still brings up that, that very good question of how did he not know that was his daughter? If she is Force-sensitive, even if she's not aware that she's Force-sensitive, we do know that she is Force-sensitive, whether she had tapped into it or not. How did he not pick up on that? Okay, I have an answer for this, and it is the mother of all retcons. Oh, good. This will be fun. Because it is using... <laughs> It is using information that we found out, let's see, 70, 80, 90, 40-some-odd uh, years later. Travel with me for a second to the Mandalorian. And we have our, our titular hero, the Mandalorian, Din Djarin, who is tasked... Well, I mean, tasked is a strong... No, tasked. The armorer really tells him at the end of Season 1, nope, this kid is your problem. Um, we don't necessarily see manifestations of his force power. And the way they play the Mandalorian is that there's kind of this awakening, for lack of a better term. And I hate that term because in the in, in the episode 7 trailer, it, there has been an awakening. And it's like it's kind of ruined that word for me. Um, rest in peace, Snoke. Um... Anyway, it becomes kind of the same thing with, with Grogu, is that as these Force powers are awakening, they manifest themselves a little bit more and more. you got to remember, in A New Hope, Leia was, what, 19, 18? I think Something. so. Somewhere late, in the same age as Luke, yeah. Late teens. Oh, that's right, they're twins. Yeah. I forgot, they're brother and sister and they're twins. What? George Lucas, you're so crazy. Um, <laughs> it could be as simple, and again, a massive retcon, that, yes, she's Force-sensitive, but we've we've seen in other media, we've seen an expanded universe, that doesn't necessarily mean that the Force... You know, it's not like someone is born with their Force powers switched on. Sort of emanating, right? Yeah, and it could be as simple as, yes, she's Force-sensitive, but... At that age, we didn't really, you know, know. Yeah, it's a good point. And and again, if he thinks his kids, if he thinks his kids were never born, it's not something that he 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 might have just felt. This person has some force sensitivity, but I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to comment on it or or even mention it for fear of trying to bring them out. I just have to think that someone who is apparently as attuned to the force, who's as midichlorian rich if you want to go that route, as Vader or Anakin Skywalker would be, wouldn't pick up on it. Because he even says, I sense a presence I've not felt since when, when Obi-Wan shows up. So, I, I, I don't know. It's it's something that's always bothered me. And that's one example of, I think I think we can, we can be fairly certain, I think we, it is fairly common knowledge, that Lucas did not have it all mapped out as far as... Um, Luke and Leia being brother and sister. Right, and we have to keep in mind that we're kind of in our mind retconning this in a larger scale. Here we are, 2021. Our media consumption is such that all all questions are answered. If you think about, you know, historically, I don't know if you watched this series or not, but um, uh, Lost, the show that was on seen, ABC. Seen for the first years. episode. Okay. When well, we were discussed it on the pilot episode available on arriving.media.com. The thing that's interesting about Lost is that we get through all the seasons, last season notwithstanding, and not every question was answered. 
And as a consequence, so many people kind of think less of the series because of that. They're like, well, they didn't answer X or they didn't answer Y, so therefore I don't like it. Contrast that with something like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where every plot point, every thread, every Easter egg has some sort of connection here. So we're at least in our our modern, so again, 2021, in this expectation that every thread, every plot line, every easter egg will have some sort of significance but more than that a conclusion george lucas in 1977 when he was writing a new hope and and so on and so forth with empire strikes back and return of the jedi didn't necessarily have that devotion to tying up every plot line or i don't know that he necessarily cared you know you you talk about he didn't know that his children were born. You also have to remember that up until the very end of Return of the Jedi, when when we're having this climactic duel in the Emperor's throne room, he didn't even know there were twins. Right. And it's, and it's interesting. That's true. That's true, because he did say, sister, you have a twin yeah. sister. That's true. And what's even more interesting there is the Emperor didn't know either. The Emperor knew as early as... Empire Strikes Back, that the the rebel that shot down the Death Star, the rebel that was the pain in their sides, was the son of Skywalker. Like, he he knew. I mean, that comes in the first half of, of Empire Strikes Back. So he knew not only did Anakin and Padme's child get born, but has survived until their present day. But he didn't know about Leia. You know, and it's actually kind of the the greatest compliment you can you can pay the organas that they they took you know leia in she became their adopted daughter and again if you look in expanded universe if you look in the comics especially if you look in the books there's no question that she's never adopt like she knows from a very early age that she is adopted i mean there's there's a well Claudia- if you look at her parents you know jimmy smith's is uh, an actor of of uh, latin descent and i'm not sure we ever i know we saw her mother at the end of revenge of the sith but i cannot remember what she looks like to save my life she's 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 pretty she's caucasian okay i mean it's it's definitely a character that is not fleshed out in the movies at all other than like you said the one appearance she is fleshed out in the uh the the novels there's actually a great claudia gray novel if i'm correct uh, Princess Leia, uh, Leia, Princess of Alderaan, which is is a story that kind of not only covers the the burgeoning alliance, um, but also Leia is like a twelve and thirteen year old girl, um, which is fascinating actually because the book and and not many people realize it was released in the um, the lead up to the Last Jedi is also where we get the introduction of our favorite purple-haired admiral. Oh, Holdo, right. I remember yes. that, yeah. And that is Holdo's really other major appearance in kind of the Star Wars universes in this book. And she does appear in a comic as well, like a, in, a, in a one-shot a one shot appearance in a comic. Uh, and I think it's from the same era. Um, So, it just, I don't know, it, it, it ultimately, trying to tie this back to the original... There's so much that ultimately is left up in the air. Is it because George Lucas is trying to be mysterious? 
Is it because he wasn't necessarily worried about tying up these plot lines? And are we guilty of applying a veneer of retcon because of our expectations of it now? I mean, it's it's funny because we're seeing it now in at least in the new canon with the books with um, Thrawn. So Thrawn was one of the first major E. He was the first major EU character introduced way back in the early 90s with Timothy Zahn's um, original trilogy that kind of jump-started the uh, expanded universe canon, for books at least. Right. Um, and now we're getting, now that we're in the new canon and those books are, are, are legends, quote-unquote, we're getting new trilogies about Thrawn because we're determined to stick, you know, put him in the new canon. We've now seen him in Rebels. We now know he's disappeared in Rebels. We now had a mention of him in Thrawn. Well, there are not only one, but two trilogies written, ironically, by Timothy Zahn, the kind of the father of Thrawn, that are are dealing with this, you know, who is this mysterious figure? Who is this plot threads? Our modern sensibilities of needing to know as much information as possible to have everything stick the landing is I feel in a way pushing that. And, and so we have to be careful about saying, well, what about this thing in, in a new hope or what about this thing in empire strikes back? We know at this point, Lucas wasn't necessarily thinking that strongly. And so ultimately whether Vader senses Leia on the Death Stars or not as his daughter or more generally as someone who obtain has any sense of force sensitivity I don't even I mean it doesn't exist because I don't even know that Lucas thought that way No I think you're right and uh I, and I guess that that's another question is when we're coming up with these things are we if you're coming up with a fan theory should you be beholden to just what has been on presented on screen and in the books or should you also be beholden to what you know was the original intention or not intended by the writer and the creator? I think ultimately you can have your cake and eat it too. I think you're not really beholden to anything. And if you are, well, you've just decimated the fanfic genre as, as a whole. Right. Um, <laughs> I think that... On a basic level, we have an, not an obligation. I don't know what a lesser word for obligation would be. I think we have a responsibility to respect what the filmmaker is putting on screen um, or the author is putting in the book or the artist is putting in the comics. But I think it's our nature to try and find these webs, these threads. I don't think there's any harm in it. I think the harm potentially comes when you decide your hand your head cannon is canon right and and ultimately we've seen this play out in in the last jedi so many people's head cannon about luke skywalker that he you know for lack what of a better he should term, be yeah yeah that he is this mary sue who can walk into a star destroyer and kill a bunch of you know black painted robot assassin droids um without a second thought as he makes his way towards the bridge or 
you know, levitate every rock on a planet or, you know, he is, he is the quintessential, for lack of a better term, God. And then we get Last Jedi where not only is he a hermit, but he's a hermit in the wrong way. He's not the Obi-Wan hermit, but he's the screw you guys, I'm going home hermit. Get off my lawn. Get off my lawn. I don't want to be here anymore amongst you. You know, and and then it seems like a a portion of the collective Star Wars universe lost their ever-loving minds. Headcanon ultimately is important because it helps us rationalize in our minds things we enjoy. And if you if you are sitting at home thinking, well, I don't do that. I take everything at face value. No, you don't. Yeah, that that taking it at face value is a form of your own headcanon. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I don't know that authors, artists, and filmmakers are just you know the whole the whole creative genre. They're not beholden to our headcanon. And right, the, yeah. The it's, story isn't. As yeah, well. exactly. Yeah, you're, 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 having your own headcanon is fine, and it can be a lot of fun, as long as you don't expect your own personal headcanon to be the one that is catered to. Exactly. And that's the problem we have right now, is we have a, we have a, a lot of people in the, in the fandom that, that expect their personal opinion to be the one that is valid and validated, and when it's not, well, that's just wrong. Here's here's a here's an interesting thought question for you, and I know we probably won't get too much into this because this is going to be a whole. This could be theoretically a whole series of podcast episodes. So we go back to two thousand eight, two thousand nine, when George Lu- when George Lucas sells Lucasfilm to Disney for four billion dollars. Oh, that was actually as late as twenty twelve. Was that twenty? It was two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve, sometime there. And I only know that because I know where I was working at the time. And it, yeah, it was about 20, it was either 2011, 2012, somewhere along in there. This just shows you how 2020 has messed up all of, I mean, it feels like it was longer ago, but yeah. thanks to 2020. Could have, been 20, could have been early 2013, but it was around that time, yeah. Right, oh no, absolutely. But it, it you know, it, anyway, um, here's the question. So Lucas sells Lucasfilm to Disney for $4 billion, good on him, by the way. Right. Um, and with that, he surrenders all creative control. He surrenders all official input into the material he has signed over to Disney. Is what George Lucas now is, are his comments, because he has made some comments about the sequel trilogy, um, and various other forms of media and his various likes and dislikes are we now beholden to what is now George Lucas's headcanon? While he is, quote-unquote, the maker, he's not the maker anymore. Well, yeah, he is the originator, but he is no longer the owner. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a very good point, and I, th- I think there are people who are. I think there are people who feel like we should be, and those are the people that say everything, you know, post-Disney buyout doesn't count, and I think those people are just missing out on a lot of really fun stuff. Uh, and there are those who say, kind of like you and me, are like, well, you know, whatever happens, happens. At the end of the day, it's a fictional universe anyway. So you can you can discard whatever you want from it to make, again, like you said, to make your own headcanon. But when you do that, if you try to discard something, um, the, the problem comes in that you can't, you then can't partake of any anything new that comes out. Because it's all building on what has come before. And if you're stopping at a certain point, then... You know, if you stop at 
well, I like The Force Awakens, but everything after that I don't really like, so I'm going to stop there, then you can't partake of Last Jedi. Uh, really, I, I would say maybe you can't even partake of The Mandalorian because there are some elements that we've seen in the uh, in the, uh, the the legacy, the sequel trilogy that have, have come to pass in that. We've seen sort of the uh, the beginnings of that, so... I don't know. It's, it's it, that's interesting. This man, this I, this conversation took a turn that I wasn't expecting, and this is far more interesting than what I had in mind anyway. Um, but yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right in that uh, that that headcanon. It's it, it, again, it's a fun way to live, but again, you you can't live inside your own headcanon. I think it's worth remembering. Yes, folks, I'm aware you can hear my dog snoring. Uh, there's literally nothing I can do about it. So just enjoy that. <laughs> So yeah, so that's I think we've sort of come to uh, a stopping point. A stopping point, but I think we sort of come to both uh, sort of a, a common ground on this one as well. And that uh, whatever I think about it is fine. Whatever you think about it is fine, as long as we acknowledge that if what we think about it, especially the scene in The Empire Strikes Back, if it later on gets contradicted, then that just means okay, well, it must have been something else. It must have been what John said, or. It must have been what I said. Or something completely different. Or something completely different, yeah. And as long as it's interesting, I'm fine with that. Exactly. Yeah. I'd have no problem with that whatsoever. So uh, we'll be right back. We're going to take a quick break. And we're going to come back and talk a little bit of music for a couple of minutes. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we are back. And so, John, I thought what we might discuss this time, I know you normally choose the music topics, but I had one that um, I, that I, I wanted to uh, discuss with you. And so uh, we're going to do that. My question is, it's not necessarily something to do with any particular piece of music, but my question for you is, and this is a question I'd love to hear our readers answer, or listeners, our readers, our listeners answer as well. What is your preferred method for listening to the Star Wars scores in particular, or if it's the same across the board to just music in general? Well, I mean, this is going to come as a little bit of a shock. I am not as much of an audiophile as some of my colleagues and friends in the music world are. I have memories and visceral reactions to various forms of media, but I'm also somewhat limited in my current um, kind of consumption. Some of my earliest memories of listening to A New Hope's soundtrack was on my dad's turntable. And I would sit there, you know, and so now we're talking... Let's see, I was born in 79, so this would have been 83, 84, 
I was I was early but old enough to remember of sitting there in front of the record player with the massive headphones on. So I mean again, oh, the cans, yeah. The cans. I mean this is 1983, 84. So they're I mean they're massive and I'm I'm a, I'm a kid. I'm I'm, you know, 4 and 5 years old. So I mean they're even massiver on me. Yeah, they've put together they're probably the size of your head. And and so again and we're going back to one of my favorite terms. I have this visceral reaction, this visceral <laughs> memory of doing that and listening and you know and so I would be lying if, in again, my other favorite term, headcanon, in my own personal headcanon, there's always this kind of sound of putting the needle on the record and hearing that, you know, the the pop and the crackle before the opening fanfare of A New Hope, you know, and it's there, even though necessarily now I don't own a turntable, and it's it's one of those things I want to own a turntable, and I've just... I've never had the opportunity. I've never had, you know, the, the enough drive at this moment to to acquire a turntable. Um, and that's on me, and that's personally, and that's you know that that's a value judgment on me. So right now, <laughs> my 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 preferred <laughs> my preferred uh, choice, one out of one choices, is I do a lot of streaming now. Um, and it's funny because as as a, a classical musician um, as being my primary vocation, so many people consider you know things like Apple Music and in Spotify, Spotify being my primary, you know, kind of as this classical wasteland. You know, oh well, if you want to listen to classical music, you can't do Spotify or you can't do Apple Music or you can't do Google Music because you know just it's not there and i'm and i kind of look at these people weirdly like what are you talking about yeah you you can you can get lost in the in in the classical music on both and and as far as sound quality yeah you're streaming it but you can stream it at a, at a at a large enough bandwidth if you have the bandwidth that it sounds i won't say cd quality but it sounds better than cassette quality for sure oh absolutely and you know and that's one of the things that's always again I will fully admit not, you know, coming from an audiophile background per se is, I mean, personally, my settings for Spotify are, you know, I've maxed out the, the, the streaming quality. I have, you know, I make it a point to, you know, have good to, I wouldn't say exceptional, but definitely good to high quality, um, earphones um i don't own any uh over ear or cans at the moment um but the the bluetooth uh earphones that i use are high quality i mean the good range of sound good good expressiveness um and i i fully admit that i am one of those people that go in and I will my my, my computer is EQ'd very specifically for these Bluetooth earbuds, and you know I'm I'm the type of person who even EQs his TV to get it you know sounding the way I want it to sound. Mister, I'm not an audiophile. Well, okay, I'm <laughs> I'm an audiophile light. I mean the the reality is is that there are audiophiles in this world, and that and you know what they are allowed to live their life the way they are, and I. I appreciate their passion for it, but 
who refuse to listen to music in, in on certain formats. Like, they refuse to do streaming, or they refuse to do CD, because, you know, it's not the same. Or, or even when you come to digital formats. So the MP3 has kind of become the ubiquitous format for mass consumption. Um, but you also have the FLAC format, which I always, in my mind, call the FLAC format, but I'm, I'm sure there's a better name for it. And, you know, there are so many people out there who are like, I won't listen to MP3s. I will only listen to FLAC files. And, you know, as a consequence, you know, a Beethoven symphony, which may be 80 megabytes when it comes to MP3, is in reality, you know, like four, five, 550 megabytes in FLAC files. But in their, you know, in their experience, in their in their world that's a higher quality and so that's the only way they'll do it that's my brother um for me ultimately give me a good pair of earphones and give me a source of i'm not necessarily looking for the audio buffet of perfection if i want to hear the absolute pinnacle of an orchestra playing something I'm just going to go to a live orchestra concert because vinyl, MP3, streaming, FLAC, you know, CD, tape, 8-track, 4-track. It doesn't really (laughs) matter because I promise you, none, absolutely zero of those formats are better than listening to the music live. You're right there. You're absolutely right there. So actually, once again, you have made me answer my own question. (laughs) <laughs> What's my preferred format of listening to the Star Wars score, but music in general? Live. You didn't even realize you were as much of a hipster as you are, did you? I guess not. And I how, prefer to hear my music How dare live. you? How dare you call me? <laughs> Jeff Ellen McGee, how <laughs> dare you? That's not what the L stands for, but that's a valiant attempt. Uh, <laughs> How dare you call me a hipster? Oh, oh, revenge revenge will be coming, my friend. Oh, yes. I look forward to it. Uh, as, as for me, my answer is a little... Uh, it, it's, my, my answer is a little easier to explain, but far less concrete. Because if I, my preferred method of listening to music really depends on the moment. Because like you, I do enjoy the the pop and the hiss of vinyl uh, before it starts playing. And I do I do have a record player. I've got a, a decent setup for my space. And I have uh, all of the scores, except for, I don't have the prequels, but I have all of the other scores uh, on vinyl. And I find that, so I'll, I'll listen to them streaming because it's, it's extremely convenient. You can just put it on and let it play while you're doing stuff around the house. Uh, I have the compact disc versions of the expanded scores, which are great. That came out in uh, like nine, the late 90s. Yep have all of those uh, again they're they're wonderful uh and i can tell the difference i can put in a cd and tell a difference between the cd and the stream uh the stream is you know slightly more compressed slightly less uh less full sounding but then i put on a uh, put on the vinyl and you turn it up to just the right volume and it to me almost sounds live uh, and again i've never heard this music performed live by an orchestra uh unless it was like a high school orchestra. I've never heard it performed live by a professional orchestra. It's something I would like to do at some point. I'd love to go to one of those screenings where it's, you know, they have the live orchestra accompaniment, but uh, the last time they came through, I didn't have a spare $400 for the ticket. Uh, But uh, one thing that I do love about the vinyl experience is it forces you to listen to it start to finish. 
uh, and or at least start to finish from one side, and then you you know when you flip the platter. Uh, but I do find that the vinyl experience, uh, we've, you know, everybody talks about how vinyl has a warmer tone, and it's actually true. But I can hear a lot more nuance in the vinyl than even I can on a CD. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Listening to it live is a completely different experience. And um, so let me ask you this. And this is this is probably another question that's going to be tough for you to answer, but what is the best venue that you've ever heard a live orchestra perform? Oh man, how how dare you ask me? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. I mean, I've heard concerts obviously here in Dallas and, you know, at at the Meyerson and and um we also have a great hall at the Eisman, which is a suburb in a suburb north of Dallas. Um, I've heard concerts in New York City at uh, Avery Fisher, and I've never been to Radio City. I've heard Radio City is great. I've seen the Rockettes perform there, but I've never heard an orchestra. I've heard the organ play at Radio City, which is phenomenal. I don't, I don't know that I could answer that. So, so what? What is your? What is your preferred setup for a venue? So, yeah, all of these venues, I'm sure they all have something in common in that they all have, you know, very good acoustics. They're all, you know, designed well to to really capture that orchestral sound well. So, is there is there a venue that you've been to that you would never go to again? Um, and you don't have to name it, but if if there is one that comes to mind, just what was it about that venue that didn't work for you? I hate Fair Park in Dallas. Everybody hates Fair Park. It's yeah. like a shoebox. Yeah. And it's just acoustics are, are, they're not good. And it's actually kind of funny because Fair Park actually started out as an opera and a symphony hall way back a million years ago before the Arts District in Dallas was built. Uh, Fair Park was where the Dallas Symphony and the Dallas Opera and basically everybody performed. Like that was, that was home. That was home base. Um, and from what I understand, at that time, the acoustics were, were okay. They weren't horrible. They weren't great. They, they existed. Um, so fast forward a couple of decades, and now the Arts, arts District is, is built. You've got the Meyerson in the heart of the Arts District, which is now where the, um, the Dallas Symphony plays. A couple of decades after that, you have the AT&T Center, which is now the home of the Dallas Opera. Um, and at some point, and actually, uh, I don't, this is apocryphal only because I've never actually done the work to confirm it, but I'm 90% sure it's accurate, is that in the 90s, there were some actual major renovations at Fair Park in Dallas that changed the acoustics of the of the hall because the larger touring shows, because on top of everything else, on top of the Dallas Symphony and the Dallas Opera and every other show, Fair Park was the place for the the AAA um, touring Broadway shows to come through. And it sort of still is. I think they oh, play. They play. Yeah, they play downtown Dallas as well. But the, yeah. Fair Park, for the most part, is where most of them come in. Well, I mean, it's now between Fair Park and and AT and T. AT and T has a season that's as big as Fair Park's, but. Um, 
from from what I understand apocryphally, it was a production of Lion King, who had a very set of of particular demands, saying your hall must be X, Y, and Z, and you must be able to do this, and you must be able to do that, and that was the impetus to kind of put these changes into Fair Park, and from what I understand, completely wrecked and destroyed the acoustics of of the space. And you call it a shoebox. I kind of call, call it a coffin because it's where sound goes to die. <laughs> um, I have. It's true, folks. If you're not familiar, if you sit in like the first, I've I've heard that if you sit on like the first twelve rows, the sound actually travels over you, and you just can't hear anything. Yeah. yeah. Um. And it's and it's funny because everything I have seen at Fair Park in and I've been living in Dallas for, uh, it'll be nineteen years this fall. So I've seen several, several, several touring shows. I've seen orchestra concerts there uh, for the longest time, Dallas Pops, before they went to the dark side, uh, would play at Fair Park. Um, and I never particularly had a great experience. The The Broadway shows would end up bringing in their own sound system, and because it wasn't necessarily balanced out perfectly for the hall, because it's impossible to balance out for the hall, it just sounds over-amplified, and just, at times, there were certain shows that were painful to listen to. I remember when um, The Wedding Singer came through, and the sound was just so overdone, it was so over microphoned and, and just just so much that at times it was painful like just it physically hurt um and then you get to the orchestral side and it just nothing sounds vibrant nothing sounds interesting nothing's really enjoyable about it it's there it exists but it's not always the sound you you know it can be right and so, do you have an idea of what it is that changed, or, or or what it is about that space now that just doesn't work? Um, I can't get too much into specifics because simply I don't know them. But from what I understand, they sh- they changed the shapes of they changed the shapes of the walls. They changed angles of the walls, and it's funny because you know you you think for for us non engineers, you think oh. Building a theater is easy. You put boxes up, you know, you put walls up, you maybe you hang curtains, and, and you, you make it look pretty. And you think of, like, the old Victorian theaters and the old, you know, the Edwardian theaters of, of velvet and and ropes and, and hanging drapes. There is as much of a science and art as there is to building theaters. Um, any... Any place that's building an arts building, whether it's for stage production, whether it's for opera, whether it's for orchestra, they're going to bring in acoustical engineers whose entire job, whose entire life is to not only sit there and design these spaces to give you the best possible sound for what your primary function is, but then they will come in after it's built and help you adjust by hanging curtains there or taking curtains down there or finding a harder paint for this wall or maybe furnishing this in wood as opposed to metal to get the most optimal sound possible. And there are various theaters that, you know, 
I've worked in and I've been in where you can tell they didn't. And I question whether they did that for the Fair Park redesign. Mm-hmm. Because the the choices they made were to the detriment of the sound. And again, I have to agree. And so that that's kind of what I was 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 getting at was, you know, the the angle of the walls and everything. That that's what that's what matters. Mm-hmm. Acoustics matter and uh if if you're if you're someone out there who is wanting to go when when we're able to go listen to live music again, uh, who is wanting to go, just you know, do a little bit of research on the hall. Uh, look for reviews of, of past performances and things like that, because there are there are communities that that have really good concert halls, but for whatever reason they can't book the acts that they want to book in. They can't book the uh, the performances that they want to book because of scheduling or, or whatever. So do your research on that. And and if you're if you're someone who enjoys listening to music. Ultimately, it doesn't matter what format you're listening in, as long as you're listening and you're enjoying it. But I would encourage you to seek out a variety of formats. Find out the one that makes the most sense for you. Um, if you're a younger person and you have grown up in the, mostly in the age of streaming and, and, and downloading music and have never really experienced physical media, give it a try because it does make a difference. Even the difference between MP3 and CD, I, again, I'm not an, as much of an audiophile as my brother, but my ears are attuned enough that I can tell a difference. And there's a difference between streaming and CD. There's a difference between CD and vinyl. And the difference between CD and vinyl is less uh, a matter of clarity and more just a, uh, a matter of personal preference. You're going to hear a lot of things that you don't hear on CD just because there's more room for it to expand on a, on a vinyl mastering if the mastering is done well. And again, that, that warm tone. And for me, a lot of it is about the... It's almost like the Japanese tea ceremony, which is as much about the the ritual as it is the tea itself. Uh, the the act of pulling the vinyl out, the record out, putting it on the plat, putting it on the the turntable, dropping the needle on it, and having the music start is part of the experience for me. And uh, I, I tell the story one time. I had a copy of Thriller on vinyl, and when I dropped the uh, dropped the needle, and I think it's Pyt. I think Pretty Young Thing is the first song that starts. For a split second, I was in 1985 all over again. It was amazing, and that's kind of the same feeling I have, kind of like what you were talking about with listening to your dad's records. And that's why uh, I will always buy a Star Wars score that comes out on vinyl, even if I didn't particularly like the movie. That's why I'm, I want to get the, the prequel scores, because again, regardless of how I feel about the movies, I think the scores are phenomenal for all of them. And so eventually I do hope to have all of the scores on on vinyl for that very reason. But if streaming is all you got, you're not missing a whole lot. But when you do have time, I do, I do highly suggest just checking out some other formats to see which one works the best for you. That was this was more of a public service announcement for me than anything. So, and and like John said, if you have the opportunity to go see it live, by all means, take that chance. Have you, uh, John? Have you have you heard the scores performed live by a professional orchestra before? Many a time, yes, I have heard it played. In various styles, by styles I mean I've seen, you know, traditional pops concerts where highlights are played. I've been to symphony performances where they've done the play along with the movie, stuff like that, by several different orchestras, several different areas. Okay. And uh, have you ever, has it ever been a bad experience? Um... Obviously some are better than others, but has it ever been just a bad experience? I wouldn't say bad bad um i do remember an interesting gaffe 
of at one of the concerts that I wouldn't necessarily. I mean, from a performer standpoint, it's mortifying and bad. Um, from an audience standpoint, it's to me personally, it was amusing, but kind of, you know, being a, a, a classical musician in an audience setting, I I chuckle because it's um, I've been there. I know how that feels. So it was goodness 10, 10, 15 years ago. I, I don't remember. I'd have to go back and look at the date specifically. Um, Eric Kunzel, who was uh, who has unfortunately since passed away but is considered one of the top, oh, I'd say three or four Pops conductors in the United States um, ever, was actually in Dallas to do a concert of Star Wars music with uh, the Dallas Symphony, and they they brought in Anthony Daniels to kind of be like the host-slash-narrator, which was just fantastic. And so it... For those of you who are not necessarily familiar with the classical world, what orchestras tend to do is they do what's called a concert cycle, which is they do the same concert, but they do it multiple times. So they'll do like a Thursday night, a Friday night, a Saturday night, and for some orchestras, they'll do like a Sunday matinee. Um, and it's always interesting because like the Sunday matinee and the Friday night, they'll they'll mark it specially and they'll only do part of the program because it's meant to be shorter and yada yada, but that's not necessarily important for this story. Um, so a group of friends and I had managed to not only secure tickets for this, which was fairly hard to get because being Pops concerts are a bit more popular, but also Star Wars makes it popular again, we managed to actually score... Um, Coral Terrace seats, um, which was even weirder because this concert had the chorus. And so for those of you who have ever been to uh, the Meyerson in Dallas, so your stage is set up and then the Coral Terrace kind of frames it on three sides. Well, for this concert, they had a reduced chorus. They were only on the back. So the two sides of the stage, uh, Coral Terrace, were actually open for seating which is where we ended up going. And the concert was fine. Um, I since have found out from from acquaintances and friends in the orchestra, they actually basically had no rehearsal for this concert cycle. So we get to opening night. It's the second half of the program, and they're doing Duel of the Fates from Phantom Menace, episode one. And for those of you who are familiar with, with the music, and I, if you're listening to a Star Wars podcast... Something tells me you are, because, I mean, this is one of the top ten tunes in Star Wars-dom. Um, and it starts with that Kora Mata, and, and it's this acapella chorus, and then the orchestra kind of comes in, counterpoint to that. Well, they either got the wrong pitch, or they got someone played the wrong note, or didn't play the note at all. And you see Eric Kunzel, he looks up to the chorus, and he gives that downbeat, and the most discordant, out-of-tune utterance. I don't want to call it music, I don't want to even call it (laughs) sound. Just emanates from the chorus, and they get through Cora, Mata, Cora, and then you just see Kunzel cut them off. And he just stares at them for a good five seconds. 
And so sitting in the choral terrace, you can see the chorus, you can see the orchestra, you can see the audience that's sitting in the traditional seats. And basically everyone in the room has this look of, what just happened? <laughs> and so he... That would be mortifying for me in the audience because I've oh. been in situations similar to that before, yeah. And so you see Kunzel turn to the pianist because this is this is orchestral music uh, that John Williams wrote and therefore it has a piano in it because, well, he was a pianist. Um, and he just looks at the pianist and all of a sudden you hear very softly the starting notes played. One, two, three, <laughs> four... He looks at the chorus again with just kind of this evil steel look. And he gives the downbeat. And everything's fine now. Like, the, the, there's no way they're going to mess this up twice. Um, right. But I, I think when at least it comes to Star Wars music, that's the one that sticks the most in my mind as, I guess, the closest to being bad, I guess. And Yeah, and that, it wasn't that it was so much bad. It was just obviously people just were not on the same page. Yeah, and like I said, I found out after the fact that um, unlike most concert cycles... So, you know, stepping back just for a second, this is over overgeneralized, but what most major orchestras will do is they have Mondays off. Monday is the dark day in the classical symphony world. They will have two rehearsals on Tuesday usually a morning session and an afternoon session. They will have a single session on Wednesday, and then they will have a Thursday morning dress rehearsal, for lack of a better term, but it's usually not a dress rehearsal per se. It's an additional rehearsal. And then they'll either perform Thursday night or have Thursday night off perform Friday. Um, and so that's that's normal, that you'll have the, you know, two, three, four... Four, four, sometimes five rehearsals before a concert cycle starts. Well, I did find out after the fact that thanks to um, Eric Kunzel's schedule and everything that went on, they had won. They had a Thursday morning read-through of the concert before the Thursday night concert began. And so for some of these players, for some, especially the singers, probably the singers more than the players, this was probably the second or third time they had ever sung this music before. Wow. Or seen it, you know. I mean, with the orchestra, it's probably a little bit, because of Pops concerts in general, um, and playing at various festivals and all that, chances are, if you're an orchestral musician, you have played something from the Star Wars saga at some point in your life. Um, but not necessarily with a chorus, because they're performing much less often um, especially in a symphonic setting and, you know, so on and so forth. So, you can't fault them. You know, I, I get it. I understand why it happened. It shouldn't have happened. And in a perfect world, or even a slightly less than perfect world, it wouldn't have happened. But it happened. Um, and it, The trick there is, at the, being a professional, the trick there is just getting over it, moving on, and doing... The, doing the concerts you were supposed to do from the beginning. Actually, absolutely. That's that's what you have to do. Yeah. So, okay, well, there there you go, folks. There's there's something, if you've never been to an orchestral performance, there's some of the fun stuff that can happen, uh, but ideally is not going to happen when you go. It's not something that happens often. Uh, I've only seen it happen. I've never seen it happen ever with a professional orchestra, and it's only happened to me really, I think, twice, and those were both when I was in college at uh, 
with with my own just as a lack of preparedness by by the choir the the choir itself the the, the ensemble itself so uh so there you go folks there uh we would love to hear your thoughts on these these topics uh your your thoughts on headcanon i think john uh made some really good points there and i completely agree with him and and as far as your you know preferred method of listening to music i really want to hear your thoughts on it and if you have some some oddball uh pressings or releases of of these scores either on cd vinyl whatever uh, i would love to see those as well so head to the facebook page and share that with us we'll be back in a couple of weeks to discuss something else but until then force bantha banter a star wars chat show i'm jeff and i'm john and may the force continue to be with you Thank you for listening. To find more episodes of Bantha Banter or other Marvin Dog Media podcasts, visit MarvinDogMedia.com. To keep up with all the happenings in the Bantha Banter universe, like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Marvin Dog Media, Instagram at Marvin Dog Media, and Pinterest at Marvin Dog Media. This show has been a production of Marvin Dog Media, all rights reserved. How many times can we say Marvin Dog Media? Marvin Doug Media. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC.